Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. You're listening to Turf Show Radio. With the first pick in the 2016 NFL Draft, the Los Angeles Rams select Jared Goff, quarterback, California. John Austin, and a nickel pack from Tampa Bay. Airs it out. Oh, he drops it in the bucket. Kenny Britt is gone. Touchdown. Give it to Gurley. Gurley extending to the goal line. Touchdown. Todd Gurley. That puts him at 1,000 yards on the button in his rookie season. And now, here's your host. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to an all-new special edition of the Turf Show Radio. Today, we are going to be doing an X's and O's breakdown. And in order to do that, I brought on one of the best from TST. You know him as my son, a dinosaur. (laughs) uh, Or whatever the hell my iPhone spat back out at me. Um, Let's let's. Yeah, I, Myson, how you doing, man? See, send a DSR is what I got. Uh, <laughs> Mommy sounds idea store, uh, song idea store. Yeah, that that's that's pretty much what my iPhone kicked back at me when I tried to Google call you. <laughs> oh man, I love hearing the different ways that the name ends up coming out. I think my favorite one is my Sony, and I don't even know where that one came from. <laughs> I think the person was just. That just crazy as all hell to come up with that one, but my Sony is my favorite. <laughs> and, and and Keon, man, uh, I, I assume you fall victim to this as well. I'm a Josh Webb. It's really not that hard to mess up, but I imagine that uh, you have some similar problems, yeah? Yeah, it's the first time I've ever had someone with worse problems than me on a podcast, so it's a good start <laughs> for me already. It's, it's, you're off to a great start already. Hey, you're uh, welcome. so what we're going to be talking about today and keon if you're if you're welcome or wanting to we got some listener questions that we can get to that i think could be better answered by somebody who breaks down x's and o's i have always said on this podcast i am the sociological guy who monitors trends looks at patterns of behavior but when it comes to x's and o's i know my limitations so we reach out to those who know far more than i ever will Um, But one of the first questions that I want to get to, and the way that we're going to run this on this podcast, Myson, is I'll generally toss out a question, and then you get two, and then I'll come back with two. So it's almost, we're going to snake it, if you will. Um, So the first question I'm going to put out to you, and it's just keep it simple. When you look at the Rams offense, fundamentally, where 
or rather, which position group? Maybe remove the quarterback from it because I feel like it's way too obvious. <laughs> which position group is not doing their part for this team? <laughs> I have to oh, really think. Uh, <laughs> oh, you know, I I stand by what I said. Um, I wrote it in an article uh, earlier in the season. I still feel that Todd Gurley could be doing more. Um, and this last game, uh, as I was listening to the uh, commentators, it was the first time I heard someone other than myself call out Todd Gurley for missing holes. Um, just, you know, the offensive line, they, they aren't doing a good enough job, obviously. But when they have opened up holes, he's been missing them far too often, running with a lack of patience and a lack of vision. And he's not breaking tackles nearly as at a high, as high of a rate as he was last year. Um, it just doesn't seem like the same player that we saw last year. Um, now, when you add in the equation that he's not a player with much wiggle, um, so, you know, you, you say to yourself, oh, let's get him to the outside, let's get him on the edge. You know, yes, he has the speed to get there, but when he gets out there in a one-on-one, if he's not breaking the tackles where he's running through guys like he did last year, he's not going to get past him because he's not a – guy that has a lot of movement skills you know he's a very stiff runner he's a power runner you know elusiveness is not his game so when you when you uh take away the inside and you know that if you get him one-on-one and he's not breaking the tackles not really because a very ineffective player and i think that's kind of what we're seeing right now a guy that just he can't break the tackles he's not seeing the holes he's running very 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 stiff and upright there's just there's zero chance for success when you're running that uh that way um uh, I do look at the receivers and I say, hey, you know, there's a lot of balls that's been dropped so far. But, however, in recent weeks, I think the receivers have played much, much better. They've been beating man coverage like like no other, better than I've seen them do in a long time. It's been years since we've seen receivers beat the man coverage like they are now. So you can definitely see some uh, improvement in that group. I think that the receivers have improved more than anybody consistently throughout the season. Um, and even tight end, though, Lance Kendrick's had a – terrible terrible drop in this last game and it bothered me after the game to hear him say that uh it was a tough catch when it hit you right in the chest but um you know there I, I still look at the receivers and tight ends and I say hey you know from week one to now they have made a lot of improvements a lot of strides so I can't really say that they're struggling the most and the offensive line they're not even grading out as poorly as they were in the first three or four weeks you know so they they've even had some consistent improvements um, and since we're excluding quarterback, who I think is actually regressing, um, I have no other place to look but Todd Gurley, who just isn't producing the way that you would like to see him produce. Is that is that resonate with you, Keon? Because I was talking with JB last night, and we were looking at some of the holes on the offensive line. What's not being created? You look at the Greg Robinson experiment. At a certain point, is it fair to call that a failed experiment? I think we're past that point at this stage. He hasn't developed at all, as far as I can tell. You get some flash plays where he's out in space run blocking, but pass protection looks questionable at best, if I'm being generous to him. I don't see the same consistency in run blocking that you need from a guy who you took that high. Um, Criticism of Todd Gurley is probably fair overall, but I think situation for him has played a huge role. I think he's pressing more this year than he was last year. He's trying to force runs to... like, like. Last year, I thought he was great patience, and you pointed to his patience there. There, he's not really 
reading and uh, waiting to react and planting and going at the right time. But I think that's kind of a result of playing behind an offensive line that hasn't given him holds over the last few years, or over the last few months, sorry, not the last few years, obviously. Uh, at the start of the year, he just never had anywhere to go. And I think he's kind of reacted to not having running lanes, and he's, he's now taking away any running lanes that he does get because he's not being patient. And sure, he deserves criticism for that, but to put the criticism on him and say the offensive line is improving so the offensive line deserves credit, I think it's, it's um, lacking the perspective of where they are as, as individuals to, uh, from the start because we're kind of giving the offensive line credit for being better than awful because they were awful, whereas we're expecting a lot more from Gurley because Gurley was a high pick and we saw him as a rookie be brilliant. And I still think he's a brilliant running back and I still think he's performing relatively well. He has missed holds, I agree with that. He has pressed uh, too too often. I saw the, I think it was the box game where it kind of first started uh, started um, standing out to me. And he he was actually I think it was production in the box game wasn't actually that bad. But he had one or two plays that kind of irked me a bit. Uh, I, I wouldn't really put it on Gurley. I think obviously everyone would put it on the quarterback. For me, afterwards it would be then on the offensive line and the coaching scheme, the coaching in general. You know, I actually um, I agree with what you're saying. Um, I think the big thing for me is. When you talk about Gurley, the expectation is for him to be, you know, one of the futures of the running back position. Um, and when you talk about especially being, after he's been drafted as high as he was when the Rams oh yeah absolutely absolutely capital them. on running backs I mean yeah, absolutely absolutely when you look at that uh, just individually for the team but I mean for the NFL he's one of the guys that's being looked at as the one of the faces of the position and. For every great running back, no matter how bad the line has played, they figured out ways to move the chains. I mean, the Rams haven't had a legitimate good offensive line in about 12 years, but somehow, some way, Steven Jackson was still able to continuously move the chains and always average over four yards per carry, even though the line still wasn't that good. And nobody faced more stacked boxes than Steven Jackson during a 10-year stretch. So to and he was able to lead the league in yards from scrimmage. So that says a lot about just how good that player was. And you can only imagine what he would have been able to do behind an offensive line like the Cowboys or something like that. Uh, for Gurley to struggle again, it's a tall order. But at the at the the pedestal that you're placed on, the expectation grows. So I expect him to be able to figure out ways to maneuver behind the offensive line sort of like a Le'Veon Bell. Le'Veon Bell does not have a great offensive line, but he might have the best patience in the entire NFL. He works the holes open. He develops his blocks from the way that he runs, and you just don't see that really. I would think that this offensive line is actually worse than the one Jackson played behind. I think both are bad, but I think this one is so bad that it is dragging him down. Like For me, I, I expected a lot more from Roger Saffold this year. Saffold was like he was never a great tackle he was a solid tackle but when he moved inside initially he had a lot of impact plays where you could see the athleticism you could see his ability to locate guys after pulling around the center and just obliterate guys who were smaller than him and this year the athleticism doesn't seem to be there the balance doesn't seem to be there for me he's making no impact at all Tim Barnes at center looks like a guy who needs to be replaced uh and I think that would be huge because like you still have like I know you're stuck with Greg Robinson you're probably you're probably okay with Rob Havenstein. You're probably not hugely excited about him, but he's, a, he's probably going to be a starter for a while. I, I wouldn't actually compare Stephen Jackson, what Stephen Jackson played behind to what this group played behind. I would in the sense that neither were considered good or even average offensive lines, 
But I think Jackson often played behind a line that was at least competent, and I'm not sure this unit has been. And uh, what I want to uh, I want to ask a few things here. We're going to target the offensive line first, and then I want to move out to some of the comments that Brian Billick made about Jared Goff and Case Keenum and the relationship between the two and where they're at in terms of their progressions. But the first thing I want to stick with on the offensive line is you look at, you know, that battle. And we brought this up last now between Jamon Brown and uh, Cody Wickman. And for my money, when I covered Cody Wickman at Fresno State, my big knock on Wickman was that after Austin Wentworth left, who, by the way, was a guard playing tackle, and the fact that he didn't give up a sack in over two years is pretty flippin' impressive when you're an undersized tackle. He dominated that left tackle spot. And when he graduated, there was a lot of expectation that Cody Wickman was going to step up He was going to be a guy who could produce, a guy who could quarterback the line and lead it, even though he wasn't playing center. And it just never happened. It just never got off the ground. He wasn't really a vocal type. And now you look at somewhat of the battle between Jamon Brown and Cody Wickman and you know, given the chance to take the spot from Jamon Brown, Cody Wickman basically bottled or bottomed out. Is there a problem with the interior of the Rams line? Is it the exterior or are we just looking at the whole damn thing? Keon, what do you have? I think the whole thing is a uh, needs retooling at the moment. One of the things that's always emphasized to me when I talk to offensive line guys, like for me coming from a position where I wasn't an ex-coach, I wasn't an ex-player, I've kind of developed my understanding of the game over a decade just from watching, from listening to other people and from picking up on different things. But when I've talked to offensive linemen, former offensive linemen, former offensive line coaches, offensive line scouts, the one thing they all say is you need a great coach because you need to get all five guys working together. You need to get the communication working and you need to develop these guys together. And it, we mentioned Le'Veon Bell a while ago and the Pittsburgh Cedars offensive line. I think the Cedars offensive line has a significant amount of talent, but I think the bigger issue there is they've got Mike Munchak as the coach. And the difference between that offensive line now compared to what it was a few years ago when I, I can't remember who the last coach was there, but the, the difference when he took over as the offensive line coach has been huge. Because everything is done in time, everything is done in sync, everyone has their assignment on every single play, and everything is being executed the way it's supposed to be executed. Even when they have their left tackle go out, like Kelvin Beecham went out last year halfway through the season, they brought in Alejandro Villanueva. He, straight away, he was... He's a pr- was that, season. wait a minute, that's like the, the seven-foot tight end from Navy, right? Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm not sure how big he is. I think he's 6'11". He's 6'11". Yeah, he's pretty big. Yeah, well, basically... Basically, he, he stepped in for Beecham. Different type of player, but they got the same production from him straight away. Marquis Pouncey missed loads of time. They didn't even notice because the coaching staff had everything prepared, made adjustments, made everything work. And for me, I've watched this Rams offensive line, and I tend to watch offensive lines more as a unit rather than picking out individuals. That's kind of what you do when you're covering all 32 teams because, for obvious reasons, it's hard to keep track of everyone who's rotating in and out or, or who's starting each game. But for me, I tend to watch offensive lines as a unit as a whole. And I, like, I don't see the cohesion there. I don't see an overall level of execution. I don't, like, you see guys on the ground. You don't see guys uh, overpowering defenders. And for me, it, it always comes back to who's doing the coaching. And I think you need better coaching there because you do have a young group and you have physical talent. You may not have uh, 
he may not have football talent or whatever you want to describe it as technique, but you have phys- guys who are physically able to move, physically able to show off strength. You just need to refine it and get it working together. So for me, I would point the blame more at the coach, more at the, the well, Jeff Fisher as the overall coach, but the offensive line coach and Rob Boris as the OC. But you, you, have, to, you have to have someone guiding the young players in the right direction for that to ever become a strength because they've invested a lot in the line. It's not like they have no talent there. It's not like, uh, like the Seahawks where you've got a group of guys who were picked in the sixth and seventh round or taken from different sports to try and mold into offensive linemen. Now, I would, I would, have, I would definitely agree that um, a lot of blame needs to go into the coaching. Um, I look at the Rams' offensive line, and I say to myself that this is a line where they have had so many different guys get put in there. You know, so it's not, it's not even an issue of you know they can't find the right guy. They've tried a million different guys, but they get the same results. Now, a huge part of that is, you know, the line is all about cohesion. So if you move too many pieces around, you're constantly switching guys out, it throws that off and it makes it harder because there's no part of the game that's that relies more on teamwork and the guy next to you than the offensive line. So it, it definitely affects it when you have those uh, moving pieces. But at the same time, you're you've as the coach, you, you also kind of have to find the right, uh, puzzle pieces to put together to make the offensive line work. And I think that over the last four or five years since Jeff Fisher has been uh, been at the helm and um, Coach Boudreaux has been there with him, they've had plenty of guys come through where they should have at least found a halfway decent uh, a line to put together. But They've had zero success, so you have to look at the, you have to look at coaching. You have to point the finger at coaching and say, you know, what exactly is uh, Boudreaux and Fisher doing here? You know, uh, why can't they find the right makeup? Why are they switching Jamon Brown and and uh, Cody Whitman so often? How is it that you're eight games in and you still don't know who you want to start at guard? <laughs> you know, that's a problem, uh, and that's a problem that you have to look at the um, coaching for. With that being said, though, I also look at um, the players and, you know, I think you made a great point pointing out Roger Saffold and just his inconsistencies and really more of a decline than anything. Um, He's just not the same player that he was. He was never a great player. And uh, I agree with that 100 percent. But he was a good player and he was he was solid. And it didn't matter if he played guard or tackle. You got solid production out of him from either position, but you just haven't seen that. Um, you haven't seen that since uh, when he was first moved to guard and um, you saw the, uh, Zach Stacy running behind him. He was absolutely moving bodies left and right, was grading out extremely well, but you just don't see that player anymore. You don't see the bodies getting moved uh, from when Jake Long got signed and he got kicked inside and he's not the same player. And it's really evident. I don't know if it's uh, something that you can chalk up to the um, shoulder surgeries or whatever it may be. But, you know, when a guy is supposed to be healthy and 100 percent and he's been good before and he's not even he hasn't even reached 30 yet, you know, but he's still not. He's declining at such an alarming rate. At some point, you have to be you have to be ready to just say, hey, it's time to move on. Um I, w- I personally think that this offseason, Roger Saffold should not return. I also think that next year, Greg Robinson should not be your starting uh, left tackle. I think if, he, if you're going to have him starting, you need to move him on the inside and see how that works. But otherwise, he does not need to be your starting tackle. Um, I think Rob Havenstein is the best lineman on the team. He's the most consistent by far. And Tim Barnes is just – he's a uh, below average but not a terrible player, I guess would be the best way to put it. I think that he uh, he 
gets to the right spot often, so he's a smart player, but he just doesn't have the physical ability. He's not the strongest center in the world, and he's not the biggest either. Um, and then, as I said, you know, you keep switching out your, you keep switching out your right guard, and you're messing up your cohesiveness, and you're, you're really creating a mess for yourself that you don't need. Um, so it, it's, I think it's a good mixture of both, but I would definitely point the majority of the blame towards coaching. Tim Barnes is what I what I like to call an assignment player. He, he gets to what, what he where he's supposed to be, but he doesn't always do what he's supposed to do. So exactly, and, and it's exactly what you're saying where he doesn't have the physical ability to do it. I actually actually I should mention as well when Greg Robinson was coming out, I I was really excited about the idea of him being a left guard because in that Auburn scheme he used to like he rarely dropped back. He used to always block down and, and um, he would basically be one-on-one with the defensive tackle or, or double-teaming the defensive end if he, was, if he was in pass protection because they used play action so often. But you also saw that he could just dominate people as a run blocker. If he was inside at left guard, I think he'd get more opportunities to be more of a run blocking player and he could actually rely on more double teams at the center and not be in working in space as much. When he is working in space, he'd be working in the second level. So to me, that's kind of a fascinating idea if you do move him inside the down the lane. I, I, of course, the, the one concern there is you don't have uh, draft, a, a top draft pick next year to, to go looking for a left tackle if you wanted to find one. Put a pin in that one. We're going to come back to that a little bit later when we discuss the possibility of Jeff Fisher. But you guys both brought up something that I think is really kind of a perfect segue to what Brian Billick was talking about yesterday. And Keon, I don't know if you got a chance to read up uh, Brian Billick's assessment of the Keenum versus Goff debate. It was more of an opinion. And basically what Billick had said was, is, is if you look at where things are at, uh, one, first thing, there's no need to, to, to guarantee Goff the back nine of the season. Um, if, if he's obviously not ready yet, then there's no point in putting him in there. Now, you mentioned the problem that the Rams have on the offensive line. If you have, a, well, a number one overall draft pick, the last thing you want him to do is to get buried. But the thing that stood out to me in the evaluation was really that as of right now, in week nine, Goff still does not understand Boris's offense. And Joe brought up a point on last night's turf show radio. We talked to JB long voice of the Rams. And, and his point was basically this. If you don't understand the offense at week nine, why are you even the backup? And I posed a theoretical question. Is there some amount of the Rams saving face here by not promoting Mannion to a spot that he probably should be in? Because if you drop Goff back down to third string, what are you admitting as a franchise, if that makes sense? Absolutely. No, yeah. I, I absolutely, go ahead. Go no, I absolutely believe that he's trying to save face. Um, uh, I'm kind of... I, I, I hate sounding like a broken record, but golf just was not ready. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 I've been saying it since like February, you know, and my tone hasn't changed. He just was not ready. You look at the, uh, the, the system he was in, there was zero, absolutely zero preparation for the NFL level. Um, 
you can try to compare his system to other systems, but it's not the same. You know, there was no NFL caliber routes ran in that offense. There was no NFL caliber reads ran. There was no NFL caliber checkdowns. There was no dropbacks. He never took one snap from under center. Not one. He hasn't taken a snap from their center since he was playing peewee. So to to expect him to be ready is kind of foolish. Um, I don't care how smart you are. If you have zero, absolutely zero experience, um, how can you possibly expect that person to adapt, you know, after being with the team for only four or five months? It's just not going to happen. Um, Sean Mayan, I think that has earned the uh, – backup position, especially when you consider the fact that he began the season as the second string. Um, Based on what Classy and I saw when we went down there to to watch them, Goff wasn't there. You could just see it, man. You you could see it in in his demeanor. You could see it in the way that he got on himself after mistakes. I mean, there was a point in practice afterwards where Mannion was out there showing Goff how to how, how to hit those sideline routes, and I'm just looking at this going like, if you've got Mannion teaching Goff, why is Goff ahead of Mannion? Yeah, absolutely, and that's a very valid question. And the issue is, you you already kind of hit it right on the head is that it's about saving face. Um, in my personal opinion, if you're not going to play the kid. If you want him to learn, let him learn. Quit wasting time, you know, because if, if something happens with um, with uh, Case Keenum and, you, you know, he gets hurt, he gets banged up, whatever it is, and he has to come out the game. And uh, Jeff Fisher said that he uh, got a, a contusion on his uh, non-throwing forearm and they thought it was broken initially. And he looks at golf and he goes, you know, we're going to put you in. He's like, I'm ready. But you don't feel he's ready, obviously. <laughs> you know, if he was truly ready, he'd be playing. Because that's the quarterback that you tabbed it as the one who's better. The guy who's going to put you over the hump. Jeff Fisher's exact words was, we have everything we need. We feel that all we need is a quarterback to get us over the hump, and we got him. Those was his exact words after drafting golf in the press conference. He said, we got him. He's going to put us over the hump. We, we just, we, uh, we're going to go to the playoffs with this guy. He's our guy. He hyped him up. It wasn't the media who first did this. It was Jeff Fisher who first said it immediately after drafting him. So for him to uh, be the, your second string quarterback and you've already shown that you don't have faith in him being ready yet, if something is to happen to Case Keenum, you've already thrown in the towel. You don't believe he's going to be ready. If anything, you're probably just going to run it 40 times in a row <laughs> until the game is over. And then the following week in practice, just say you have a battle going between uh, golf and and Maine. And that's just a terrible approach that, you know, it's just not being, it's not being ready. There's, you're not being prepared for the worst case scenario of your starter going down. I think this is what happens when you don't have a clear vision of what you're doing when you make a decision, because like Jared Goff in college, like you just mentioned it, like it was clear that he was in a simple offense, that he wasn't in an NFL style offense or whatever you want even though I hate that term, he wasn't in a pro style offense. But the other issue with that is, okay, he's not ready to play. So if you're, if you're trading everything up to take him first overall and he's not ready to play, he must have huge upside. He must have a great physical uh, talent. He must have great accuracy. He must, have, he must be uh, a, a lump of clay that you can mold and develop over the years. And that's not really who Goff is either. So for me, the bigger issue here isn't that you're keeping him on the bench to save face. It's that your offense currently isn't working. 
the quarterback you have isn't playing well and you're still forcing the rookie who you traded everything away to go and take first overall to learn your system. You're not adjusting your system to help your rookie. You're forcing him to earn his keep or whatever kind of cliche you want to throw on it. You're, you're forcing him to prove himself in uh, a circumstance that's not comfortable for him. When the best coaches adjust to the talent they have, they set up an offense that works to the strengths of, of that quarterback. They set up an offense that, even if it's simpler, can still work. Because not every quarterback Tennessee in the league... Tennessee Titans right? are, are probably a prime example of this with Marcus Mariota, I, I, yeah. I think. Yeah, well, a, a, lot of, a lot of teams across the league aren't running complex offenses and complex passing games or even offenses where the quarterback has to learn a, a, a million different things just to get on the field. And for some reason, this is the, well, just based on a pure stubbornness probably, this is what Fisher is forcing Goff to do. And part of me thinks that Fisher is, just doesn't want to play Goff because he always wants to have that in his back pocket that he can point at and say, oh, we're struggling now, I but you've got Goff coming God, down the I road. was thinking that same thing last night. I, when we had this conversation, I'm sitting here thinking it feels like Jeff Fisher doesn't want to play him so that he has an excuse, you know? Well, think about it. Think, think about it. If, he, if Goff comes on for the next three weeks, starts the next three weeks, and he's terrible, what excuse does Fisher have to, to still be in charge? Because there is literally nothing that he can point to and say, look what I've done, this is brilliant, or look what's coming, look where we're going, look at the development that's going on. The literally only thing he's got to point to right now is the mystique of Jared Goff, who's hidden away, who hasn't played, who, who in, in his mystery can offer more than he can ever offer as a rookie starter. See, I want to delve yeah. into, because Myson, you and I had talked about this uh, in terms of uh, my strength has always been college. I've, I've always, I, this is my first year admittedly covering an NFL team. I've been covering college teams for the past five years. And, and you sort of, Keon, you said something uh, in, in your answer to the last question that really stood out to me where it's like, there's not the NFL doesn't have an overwhelming amount of complex offenses. And I think that's part and parcel because of the fact that the NFL is having to adapt more to the college game than vice versa, because that's the talent you're getting. You with, with college having these proliferation of spread offenses and putting points up on the board and basically taking advantage of, I mean, look at it. Unless you have a, a, a just an otherworldly secondary, even Bama last year, they got torched in the secondary. You know, undefeated national champions, all that great, or maybe they lost the game. I don't care. Uh, national champions, but their secondary was shit. Um. It, it, it just it just is what it is in college. You you get these players. This is what they're capable of doing. Is the NFL caught in between a rock and a hard place where you have some coaches like Fisher, maybe like a Tomlin, who it took him a little bit to 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 finally open things up. Um, do you have a situation where these coaches are maybe like you said, being a bit stubborn and trying to force the athletes to fit what they want rather than what they're coming out of college ready to do. Well, I think the best, the best example you've got for this right now is um, in Indianapolis, 
where Andrew Luck is getting sacked. Um, I think he's on course 60 sacks this year. Yeah, he's got 33 sacks in nine games, which is just outrageous. And Chuck Pagano, his reasoning for uh, for staying in the offense that they're staying in, where he has to, where, where Luck has to execute play fakes, drop back, wait for vertical routes to come open, even though the offensive line can't hold up in pass protection. Chuck Pagano's reasoning for sticking with that offense is he literally believes if you run 20 or more times in a game, you have a better chance of winning automatically. He doesn't understand that teams that are, play with the lead, teams that are winning, run the ball to run out the clock. So teams typically run more if they are playing with the lead, so they're more likely to be winning. And Chuck Pagano has built his offensive uh, system and his philosophy around the idea that we have to run the ball, even though you've got Andrew Luck, who's an extremely talented passer, someone who could run an offense like Brady or an offense like um, Rodgers or Manning or anyone else who, who you want to talk about. And simply out of his own stubbornness, his reluctance to change, his reluctance to embrace the rules in the league right now that uh, reward you for having five receivers on the field at all times, five eligible receivers, I mean, not wide receivers in, in terms of position labels, but he, he's just forcing that on the field because it's his belief and not because of it's what's best for him. And that's, there's too much of that going on in the league right now. No, I absolutely believe that. And that's, that's kind of been the history of uh, professional sports in general is coaches forcing players to adapt to their system. Um, it is the original way. Um, the best coaches were the most innovative who said, well, let me figure out what my players do best. And let me put that into uh, my system and then we can adjust from there. Um, Jeff Fisher being, you know, as I always say, one of the most stubborn coaches I've ever seen of any sport that he doesn't believe that, you know, he doesn't believe in uh, uh, changing the system to fit the players, but instead making the players fit the system. Now on the other, on the other hand, you do expect the players to be able to adjust some. Um, I think in Jerry Goff's situation, he is, um, it's more than just the, the the offense, understanding the offense, but it's also understanding the defense, understanding um, how to read coverages, where to go with the balls on certain reads, pre-snap reads, post-snap reads. You know, there's so much that goes into being a quarterback that you, as an offensive, uh, as an offensive play caller, as offensive coordinator, even as a head coach, that you don't have control over based off of what the defense does, and being able to get yourself put into the right position and um, make the right play. When you when there's when, when there's no one there to give you the play because you know once once you come out of the huddle the headset in your helmet it gets cut off you know so you don't have a coach in your ear telling you hey pre snap hey watch out for this blitz coming <laughs> you know that's something you have to be able to see pick up and make the adjustment on your own I think that Jared Goff is not just struggling with the um, adjustment to the system but just struggling in all aspects because it's something that he never had to deal with in any scenario he never had to deal with any of the aspects so everything is a, a learning curve for him you know the report came out that three weeks into the season he was still struggling with taking the uh, center to quarterback exchange you know so it's it, i think it's a lot more to it than just learning the system but with that being said considering that there is so much on his plate it would make sense for the coach to say let's take some off his plate dumb down the system and make it a little easier for him to grasp give him some things that he's used to running to help um to help his transition well the problem with that is the shit that he's used to running is five verts 
Like, that's... Sunny Dykes' bear raid isn't exactly an overly complex system to plan for. You yeah. know, at, at, you know, in Goff's junior year, when he was putting all those numbers, the Cal offensive line was supposed to buy Goff enough time for guys like Bryce Treggs to whiz past the inevitably crappy secondary that all colleges possess. And and then that was that. Then Goff shows off the arm talent, launches it up, and Bryce Treggs grabs a 60-70 yard touchdown. That's the problem with the Bear Raid system, in my opinion. I be how as as not an X's and O's guys and somebody who just looks at patterns and trends, how far off base am I, Kian? Um I, I well I'm not a huge follower of the college game, but when I watched Goff that was the feeling I got last year, that everything was just too simple. Um, I, like When I'm looking at quarterbacks, I generally want to look at how they're reading through progressions, how they're moving in the pocket, how they're placing the ball against specific coverages. And for me, I rarely ever saw Goff moving in the pocket. I was reading other people praising his pocket presence and his ability to, to move and, and throw from different platforms, and I just never saw it. Every time I, I watched him play, I thought he was catching the ball, dropping back and releasing it as, as quick as possible. He, everything felt a bit hurried. So it would make sense to me that he's struggling to adjust. But like the the the, the offense he's coming out of at the time, you you could I think I can't remember who it was, but it was someone on SB Nation went through every quarterback who had come out of that offense. And I think actually was it wasn't the case Keenum who was actually had the I think it might have been Keenum, but yeah. I, I, I might have that mixed up. Yeah, yeah no, right. no, it's case it was Keenum, case Keenum who was success. Yeah, so like it's great irony in that, but it's also probably not so much. It's not, well, not what's so crazy, around, so. crazy to me is, and I and I talked about this last night. Look, I, it looks like the Rams have an eye for talent in drafting. If if you look at the guys that they have, there's no argument against a guy like Aaron Donald. You know, uh, these types of things enable the Rams to bring in talent. Then you get to the quarterback position and you've got Sam Bradford, who basically at the year that they drafted him, aside from the fact that he was an injury waiting to happen at all times, and that should have been apparent after his two couple years with uh, Oklahoma, but he came from a system under Bob Stoops where they were just putting up 60 plus points a game. Throw it, throw it, throw it, throw it, throw it. Then you get Nick Foles. Not not entirely the same coming out of Rich Rod's offense. It's a little bit different, but for the most part, it's a high-flying offense meant to utilize the speed and talent of the receivers over the various positions of the field. Rich Rod teams like to come over the middle more than, than, than I think Oklahoma ever did, but... Now you get to Case Keenum and you look at what he did, I believe, was it Texas Tech? No, it's Houston. Uh, you look at Case Keenum in Houston and it's the same damn offense there. And now we come full circle to Jared Goff and it's another freaking air raid system. Why the hell is Jeff Fisher consistently grabbing guys who come from throw it a lot, a point a minute offense, and then trying to shovel them into well for lack of a better word fisher ball you know i love that question because um probably a week or two before the draft uh, i wrote an article comparing golf to wits dead on no, no outside uh influences just their games and best fits for the rims offense and 
it was an easy conclusion for me that Carson Wentz was the best fit. Um, again, not nothing outside, so not looking at their weapons they had or anything like that, but just what do they present to fit what Jeff Fisher likes to do, which is run the ball. And I thought you have Wentz, who's this huge quarterback that right. takes the ball, takes the ball from under center. Get, get, you know, knows how to hand it off and knows how to run it himself. He was calling pre-snap reads at the line. He was yeah. adjusting things at North Dakota Absolutely. State. Everything it, it that Carson perfect. Wentz did. <laughs> it seemed perfect for what Jeff Fisher likes to do. You can line up, you can run an old-school West Coast offense, and you can just let him run it, and he will get it 100%. And then, not, then you add in the fact of his physical presence uh, and Jeff Fisher always, always, even now with Case Keenum, talks about his love for quarterbacks that can move around when they have athleticism and can extend plays. He mentions it all the time. Um, considering that that's such a, a, a huge factor in what he likes to look for in quarterbacks, I thought it was a no-brainer that he probably should have taken Carson Wentz because of the offense that he ran was so similar to what the offense, the offense that the Rams run now. And then the fact that he does have that huge size and mobility to break tackles and extend plays. Um, so when you look at golf and I, I always go back to when he's explaining what made them take golf and he's talking about them working him out. and It's pouring down rain and he's just letting it fly in the rain. And I'm just like, so what? You know, it doesn't quite make sense to me why he uh, was so hell-bent on bringing golf in because he threw some balls around in water. Thank you, <laughs> um, Thank you, you know, Jesus, so. dude. I didn't understand that either. I'm like, what <laughs> What the hell What the hell did that prove other than he can throw a ball in the rain? Like what? Carson Palmer played in North Dakota. If you've never been to North Dakota – I'm here to tell you it's not exactly a paradise when it comes to climate. It's well, windy as hell. The conditions are crappy. And and it, we love the term NFL conditions. And, and for the absolute most part, Cal does not play in NFL conditions. No, and that's what I was going to say. You, 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 his, his conclusion for drafting golf had to do with the weather he played in. But you're in L.A. where it barely rains. <laughs> it's 80 degrees year-round, and the sun is shining. So who gives a damn about him throwing the ball into water when most of the time you're playing, you're, I mean, you you play against San Fran, who's in Northern Cal, and their weather probably isn't as great as Southern Cal, but it's still pretty good. You know, the only real rainy place that you guarantee to play at is Seattle, and you only play there one time. You know, and you have, like you said, Carson Wentz, who's used to playing in just bad weather, even though he, he played in a dome, he still was up there in that weather regularly <laughs> practicing in it. So I look at it, I just say it doesn't quite make sense to me that this is what made you draw your conclusion. Um, and then you add in the fact that he wasn't, you know, as pro ready and there, there would be such an adjustment. I personally think that this is just a huge blunder. On their end, I mean, you're 100 percent right. They do have a have shown the ability to find talent. But Jeff Fisher has a uh, Jeff Fisher and Les Snead together um, have a pretty uh, rough track record when it comes to draft picks. They've hit on first rounds. Um, the only one that they really uh, was a complete bust is Greg Robinson. I wouldn't label Tavon as a complete bust by any stretch of the imagination. I just wouldn't label him as a number one receiver either. But he's not a complete bust. Um, he's been productive. 
Greg Robinson is a complete bust. He's the only one of all of their draft of first round draft picks. But once you get outside of the first round, they have very little success. Um, I've never seen a team have so many second round draft picks over a four year span and only hit on one of them. That is a huge failure rate. Um, second round draft pick is still a very, very high pick. It's a premium pick. To fail on about six draft picks in four years is absolutely crazy to me. I don't know how you do that, but it kind of highlights their failures with um, with eyeing talent outside of the first round. You know, So we can give them their credit for the first round, but once you get outside of that, there's been a huge struggle. So it doesn't really give you faith and scouting the most important position on the team. I have to I have to laugh because you mentioned uh, before the draft, you, you thought they were going to take Carson Wentz and it was a perfect fit. And I thought the exact same thing. Like As soon as they made the trade, I presumed it was for... It, let's just go ahead and make it three across the board. <laughs> uh, I, I presumed, once the trade went through, I presumed it was for Wentz. My line of thinking was the size, the athleticism... The supposed big arm and deep accuracy. And the other part that I thought would come into it was the winning. Because the quote I always remember from them, from him when they traded Bradford for Foles and they were talking about getting Foles. And I, I can't remember if it was Snead or Fisher, but one of them talked about how Foles knew how to win games and how he had won games and how he'd put up numbers. And it was kind of at that point where I kind of just gave up on the, the front office in terms of evaluating quarterbacks. Because they're treating, like, at that point with Foles, everyone who watched Foles could tell that he wasn't actually good. That he was benefiting from playing behind an outstanding offensive line in a scheme that was getting receivers wide open. And he would miss as much as often as he, was, as he would hit. And he didn't have any great physical attributes. But the Rams took Foles on because they could point to the wins he had and the, the numbers he put up. And for me, once you start doing that as a, a quarterback evaluator... I struggle to take you seriously or to take you or to give you too much credence in, in uh, trusting you with decisions because you're treating the individual player as the whole offense. And so, so obviously I was shocked when Goff was the pick, but of course Goff had pretty good numbers coming out of college as well. So maybe that played a little bit of a role in it. But for me, yeah, I honestly, I thought they were taking Carson Wentz. Wentz has been better than I expect him to be. He hasn't been great, but it would have made a lot more sense to see Wentz and Gurley in that offense that they're running right now as like uh, a combination because I think if if Fisher had Wentz, he would use his uh, running ability and use him to attack the defense and take some of that pressure off of Gurley. He's obviously not going to do that with Case Keenum or with Goff once Goff starts. I totally just realized now, because I was looking over Carson Wentz's number and I was looking at the Eagles passing stats and then I'm looking at, oh, Josh Huff. (laughs) <laughs> like, wait a minute. Why is jo- uh, wide receiver trickback plays? But um, before I know you were going to say something, my son, but 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 I want to ask uh, and, and maybe you can you were going to answer this anyway. So Keon rightly so is, you know, at this point, I, I don't know that the Rams have an ability to evaluate the quarterback position any more than anyone uh, anyone sitting in a couch in, in Southeast Alabama. But what I am curious about is that they have all these tools available to them. At a certain point, you don't necessarily need a scout to go out there 
and just drill these guys, drill these guys, drill these guys. You have in the technological age, we were kind of talking about this last night in the relation to the to the presidency. You know, we we look at some of the stuff that Trump got caught saying on on national television, you know, but think about how bad that's going to be 40 years from now when we live in basically what amounts to panopticon. You know, Michel Foucault pretty much hit the nail on the head with where we're headed. Think about how much stuff is going to be available for people to draw back on. You know, we'll be seeing video of them in high school acting like idiots 30 years from now in political races. The only reason I mention that is because – as the landscape of journalism changes, and I think Keon can speak to this too, you, I mean, look at the evaluation that you can do from the comfort of your own home. How is it that three people who can sit around a computer and just watch film after film after film after film after film and study these guys can all come to the same reasonably and logical conclusion that Carson Wentz was the better fit coming out of college and yet Jared Goff is the one drafted. How does this happen? Is it stubbornness on the behalf on the behalf of Jeff Fisher? Is Cronky applying the pressure and saying this is where we want to go? What what's the mindset of a coach that does this? That that's the part that I think fans have trouble wrapping their heads around. You know, that's the million dollar question. Um, Kean just he made a great point that reminded me of something that Jeff Fisher says a lot. And I hate hearing him say it because every time I say it, I'm just like, you You clearly are proving you have no clue what you're talking about. And he always talks about a quarterback's size. He always says, oh, well, he's a tall quarterback. He can see over the line, um, which the irony of that is that he's choosing to have a guy that's 5'11 start right now. But never, never, never mind that. He loves to talk about size. And when he brought in um, uh, when, he, when he got in, he kept Sam Bradford. He always mentioned, you know, Sam's a big quarterback. You know, he can see over the line. He can spot the guys. When Nick Foles got there, he's like, he's a big quarterback. He can find Tavon. He's tall. You know, he always talks about the size. And he did the same thing with Jared Goff. Oh, you know, he's, he's so-and-so and he's this big and da 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 And it's just like, what does that have to do with anything? You're saying it like you got something special. The average quarterback in the NFL is 6'4". You have a few that's under there, but most of them are 6'4 and taller. Okay, so saying that a guy is tall means absolutely nothing when that's they're just average. They're what you expect the quarterback to be. So you're not getting some prize possession that no one else has. You know, so why do you keep highlighting how tall the quarterback is, especially when you're choosing to start someone that's way below the average height? You know, there's only and it's not even that the height even matters that much with all the failed um, failed experience experiments at quarterback that's been tall and been big and they just look good in the pads, you know, and then you have guys like Drew Brees who go out there and just cut everyone up. You know, it doesn't it doesn't really make much sense to me why you continue As an ex Saints fan, Drew Brees just as good of a job as finding the other team's defensive back as he does cutting up the opposing offense. <laughs> well when you throw the ball sixty times you have a higher chance of throwing an interception. <laughs> however <laughs> however his interception rate still has not reached that of the past 
a couple of Rams quarterbacks. He's still throwing less than them. So even with that being said, he's throwing more attempts, having a higher chance of throwing interceptions, but he's not throwing as many interceptions as the Rams quarterback. That tells me the Rams do not know how to scout, scout a quarterback. They they understand scouting defensive players. They found plenty of good defensive players. They know how to find running backs. Personally, I I did not want the Rams to draft Todd Gurley. Do they know how to find running backs? Because they, Trey they Mason do. and Todd Trey Mason and Todd Gurley seem to indicate that they don't. But they do. Like they've had, their running backs have had great success. They've been able to find. Good I like Benny Cunningham. I love Benny Cunningham. You know, Benny Cunningham is a really, really, really good back. And when he when he first signed with the Rams coming out of college, I was ecstatic. I wrote this long article going on and on. And everybody's like, you're crazy. But <laughs> I like him a lot. You know, I think he's a really, really good running back. Um, so they, they know how to get good talent. But when it comes to the quarterback position, there seems to be a, a the, not just the quarterback. When it comes to quarterback and offensive line, there seems to be a legitimate disconnect. And in my personal opinion, those are the two most you can't mess up spots. You can't mess up the offensive line, and you cannot mess up the quarterback. You can you can watch coaches make do with scraps and running back and at receiver. It happens all the time. But when your quarterback is incompetent and your offensive line is incompetent, you have a failed project. And that's what the Rams continue to do. They can continue to have success in these other these other positions all over the field, even special teams. They've knocked Hunter out of the park. You know, he wasn't even drafted, but they had an eye for talent in that particular, that, that particular field. But when it comes to quarterback and offensive line, there's just a constant failure that they just can't, can't seem to figure out. That's a league-wide issue as well, because if you look at the Kansas City Jaguars game this past weekend, you will see a spectacularly bad uh, interception from Blake Bortles where he sta- he, he stares down his first read, he pump fakes, he pump fakes, he's still staring down his first read, and he throws the ball, and his first read happened to be a linebacker. So he, like, Blake Bortles is six foot five, can see over his offensive line perfectly, can't read a defense for, for anything. He, him and Brock Osweiler are the two greatest examples of how NFL teams prefer guys who look like quarterbacks rather than guys who play eight. like quarterbacks. Yeah, yeah, he's 6'8". Yeah, so, so him and Brock Osweiler are, are two great examples of how NFL teams love guys who look like quarterbacks rather than guys who play like play like quarterbacks and it's a major issue i think the other thing that you kind of that there's a positive of of being detached from the process the draft process is we there, there are positives and negatives to this but we don't sit down with the players and talk to them and gets won over by their personalities or won over by uh the way they approach what they do all we focus on from this uh from this far far away point is the skills the the skill set the performance, how they played on the field in college. We don't talk about how he was in practice or whatever or whatever whatever else you can look at in the process. And that has its negatives because you can't predict guys who are going to completely go off the rails and have issues uh, off the field. But it also gives you more objectivity and lets you just focus fully on what's going to happen on the field and not get carried away about all the stuff that doesn't really matter. Like, I think Teddy Bridgewater was a great example of this. Bridgewater didn't have great numbers before he was injured this year. But he was playing really well. You just kind of see, you can see it now. The offense in Minnesota isn't very talented, and it wasn't really set up to put up big numbers. But Bridgewater was really good, and he had that pro day where he was bad. He had this frame that people criticized over and over again. There were comments that he didn't have a face for the franchise, whatever the hell that means. I've no idea. And then the the interview he process, was too black, I think, probably. But uh, basically, Brid- uh, Bridgewater was like 
Bridgewater's tape, everyone loved his tape. Everyone said, yeah, he's going to be great. The draft process started and suddenly he's not going in the first round. Obviously did in the end, but he only snuck in. And for me, there's a, a major problem there for NFL teams where they have to figure out the things that actually matter in the draft process and the things that don't. A lot of these scouting reports start with six foot two, good size, six foot four, good size. They should be starting with very accurate, uh, comfortable in the pocket, make plays against pressure, da 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 da, all that. You see, you see it past the first round as well. All these mid round picks who are generally wasted draft picks are guys who are like Zach Mettenberger, who are six foot four, six foot five. Look great standing there, can throw the ball really hard, can't throw it to anyone, can't read a defense, can't move, and they want to try and develop these guys. Like I think you have one as your third quarterback in in uh, Los Angeles right now too, to be honest. Yeah, and, and the curious part about all of this to me is that you look at a guy like Goff, you mentioned these interceptions, and I don't know, how much tape of him did you watch uh, at Cal? I watched probably, I mean, I started scouting him the well, I know before. you did, but what about oh, Keon? How much? Okay, how much? How, how much? How much tape on Goff did you watch? Um, no, I, I I normally work through draft breakdown, and I think I had about nine games, eight or nine games, I think it was. And it was kind of a lot of them. A lot of the games were the same to me. It, it was a lot of inaccuracy, like the ball. Like he had a high completion percentage, I think, but the ball placement for me is what matters more. And I didn't see that precision as a passer. I didn't see. I, I saw enough. Did you happen didn't... to catch the Utah game? Um, <laughs> I, I believe that's I the point. <laughs> I'm, ser- I'm serious. I, I, they, know, I, like, I know where you're going with that. I, I know yeah. what you – yeah, you, you know where I'm going with this right now. But if, but if you happen to catch the Utah game and you sort of look at what happened against Utah, and this isn't something that happens to Goff as a one-off. When he has bad games, it's not a one or two interception game. It's three or four. And anytime he went up against, and in college they use this term a lot, once again, I'm with you, I think it's a stupid term, but, you know, he he hasn't played, or anytime he played a game against what could be considered an NFL defense in the Pac-12, you know, your USC's, Stanford's, Washington's, etc., he came up empty and so severely lacking and yet he would put up five touchdowns six touchdowns when it comes to like the presbyterian blue hose and so on and so forth and i'm wondering how do people not see this like okay if he's struggling against finding his reads his progressions and making the correct throws when he's faced with a collegiate quote unquote NFL defense what the hell is going to happen when Luke Keekley is diagnosing everything that this kid's going to do you know or or he's going up against you know the the, the New England Patriots it just I have a feeling that these are the types of games where he would end up with three, four interceptions. And and this isn't something like when Matt Barkley came out of USC, I said he was going to be an NFL bust. I said Matt Barkley is not even going to have one season in the NFL as a productive quarterback, not a single one. And... I can't remember how much stick I took for that. Like everybody shot me down on that one. Like you have no idea what you're talking about. Well, apparently I did because he's an interception machine. 
He was in high school. That pattern followed with him to college. And now, obviously, any chance he gets in the NFL, he's happy to find an opposing player. Anytime Goff comes up against these kinds of defenses, he seems to do the same thing. Is this something, Keon, we'll start with you. Is this something that you noticed? Or maybe if you haven't noticed it, based on what you have seen, does it give you pause? Major pause. No, I, I tend to agree. I wasn't a fan of Goff. I wrote an article where I thought he was the best quarterback in the class, but I thought that didn't really mean much because we always have to have a best quarterback in the class. I just thought it was a bad year for quarterbacks. And Wentz has outplayed what I expect, my expectations, but I'm still of the opinion that he's not going to be a great player. <laughs> I just, actually, funnily enough, because I focus on the NFL full-time and I don't get to the draft until after the season finishes... I asked about Dak Prescott and whether he was worth watching, because this is generally how I do it. I asked people who've been watching all year, people who I trust, and asked, um, is Prescott worth watching? And every single one of them came back and said, no. One or two of them even said he was like Tebow. So it does kind of point <laughs> out this is an imperfect science. And what we're doing, like, we can't always get these things right. And there are outliers, and there are guys who are always going to surprise you. I think the best example besides Dak from this year is Cody Kessler, who isn't playing great right now. He's, he looks like a backup, maybe a, a, a long-term backup he can be. But that's a lot more than anyone thought he was going to be when he was picked in the third round, except for Hugh Jackson. Hugh Jackson seemed to be the only guy who was high on him. Because if you look at his actually, college tape... Actually, I had him ranked in my top 50 players. Well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, found, I found the one guy who did. <laughs> but anyway, from my, from my own point of view, I looked at Kessler and I thought Kessler was a weak-armed passer who made too many bad decisions and a guy I wouldn't really trust to run an NFL offense. And so far, he hasn't been great, but he's been solid and he's outperformed my expectations. And for me, I have to just look back on that and go, right, I missed on it. And my eyes let me down. And you have to kind of accept that and move forward with it. And that happens to NFL guys. It happens to us here. So it it really is like we, we, we talk about the draft as if it's something that we can all control and predict. But the reality is it's as much of a crapshoot as anyone can really say you know, I I I 100% understand what you're saying and where you're coming from, and I actually agree with it in a lot of points. Um, with uh, when you look at some of these guys when they're coming out, and Josh, I think that you were I know where you were headed with the Utah game, and I think that that's a great point. Um, you look at some of these guys, there's some things that's so obvious. You know, I think the hardest thing, and this is something that I personally. Um, have worked on a lot is to take the personal feelings away. You know, you find some things where you really fall in love with a player. You know, you, there's some things you come across and you're just like, man, this, this is one of your favorite attributes and that player has it. But then there's, there's a lot of things that don't have. And you get so caught up in that one thing that you just start saying, oh, we can work around this. We can make this work. But you, what that does is you start to ignore the flaws that are really evident and some flaws are harder to overcome than others. Um, It's something that I personally really, really started to work on in scouting uh, is to stop falling in love with certain aspects of the player and be unbiased in all of my reports. Um, I think that's kind of helped me personally a lot in uh, being unbiased, not getting stuck on these certain attributes that a player has because it's very easy to do. Um, but in doing so, I also realized that I've 
had a higher success rate and you know as opposed to before i started trying to be unbiased i've had i found myself with a higher success rate and players that i say hey i think this player is going to be this i think this player is going to be that i never in a million years thought thought or think that cody kessler is going to be just this dynamic quarterback but i did think that yeah (laughs) but i did think that he would be a a solid quarterback and as i put it in the scouting report I think that he can See, and I don't team. think that either. I think right now Cody Kessler is benefiting from limited tape on him and that next year things will sort of catch up to him. Well, well, Cody Kessler's significant problems have always been this for me. First of all, he locks on to one receiver, finds a primary Juju Smith accounted for 46% of USC's offense. That cannot happen in the NFL. You cannot target one guy that often. At any point during USC's, at his time at USC, Cody Kessler never showed the ability to distribute the football in an effective manner to other open receivers. Time after time after time, I would watch Cody look down a defender and then still throw the ball right at him. The Hawaii game comes to mind for that. And I think that Keon hit on something as well in terms of what Cody's range is. He doesn't have the arm. In an Air Coriel type system, Cody Kessler would be the perfect quarterback. He takes care of the football. He doesn't turn it over, oftentimes to the detriment of, of, of a USC fan's sanity. Uh, but at the same time, he's really comfortable with those 10 to 15 yard throws. That's where his wheelhouse is. But I just don't think that based on what I've seen from Kessler, he has a long term NFL future as anything other than a backup. Well, that's not what I was going to say. But <laughs> um, I was going to say that what I saw from him is the ability to develop into, you know, sort of a solid stopgap guy, something like a Ryan Fitzpatrick, not somebody you want to oh, okay. franchise. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I like, can that's, see that. That's fair. That's, that's what I saw from him. Some, not somebody you want to lead your franchise for the next 10 years, but I would have no problem giving him a year or two to start while we develop a quarterback or something like that. That's what I see in Cody Kessler. The thing that makes me say that, is I understand 100% where you're coming from with the um, the quibble about Juju Smith having so much production in the offense, but that's college. That's every college offense. There's a guy that has. Hey, I don't know about that. You look at what but, Sam Darnold's come come in and done at USC in the absence of Cody. Yeah, but they're Kessel. also they're also yeah. Sam Darnold. They're running the ball a lot more. No, not necessarily. Not so, necessarily. They they don't that people. People look at Sam Darnold and think that he's running it more, and maybe he is more so than other quarterbacks in the past. No, no, no. I'm not talking about Sam Darnold. Oh, I mean, you mean the, the actual team? The ball, yeah, they're actually handing the ball off more. And mm. with with um, Cody Kessler, the thing that I liked about him, and it's my favorite thing that a quarterback can do, is his ball placement. Yeah, he, he does. Ball, put the ball in the right spot to catch and run so often. And that, that, to me, is the true definition of accuracy. Well, there's two things. You have to be able to put the ball in the right spot, and you have to be able to throw it into small windows. Now, small windows includes arm strength, but you also still have to have that accuracy. He has the ability to throw it into those small windows with his accuracy, and he puts it in the right spot. He doesn't throw it where they're at. He throws it where they're supposed to be, which is something that quarterbacks struggle with. 
So since he does that, that's what makes me say that I think he can be a good stopgap quarterback. If he had more physical attributes, I think that he could be a legitimate starting quarterback. I don't think that he's a franchise game changer, but I think that if he had a better arm strength, he had better mobility size, and uh, uh, I think the head up needs to be developed more. You know, he needs a better uh, yes. football intelligence. But because of his because of his ball placement and his his accuracy. Um, it's something that you can't teach. I don't care what anyone tells you. You cannot teach accuracy. You either have it or you don't. He has it. And that's why I say I think that his future is bright as he develops. And he does get more football intelligence. He does get that savvy. He can be a good stopgap quarterback. No, I, I completely agree with that. I can I, I can see how that would go down. With the time we have left, though, because people are probably like, why the hell are you guys talking about Cody Kessler? Keon, one of the things that we want to look at is is there was a there was an article put up on TST breaking down the Panthers and uh, and in the good old uh, Rams. And it was written by Classy. And here are some game notes from him on the Rams offense versus Panthers defense. And I'm going to read you these game notes, and then I'm going to read you the ones from the Rams defense versus the Carolina offense. And I want to get your thoughts on them. Okay, so here's here's Classy's first game notes. The Rams more rolled with more uh, man blocking concepts than usual. They still played a fair amount of zone, but it was more of a balanced approach than we've seen all season. Tyler Higby saw more action than normal, but he only ended up catching one of his targets. This one I thought was pretty damning. Case Keenum has zero ability to throw downfield, both in terms of talent and decision-making. Kenny Britt was lazy when blocking in the run game, and it severely hurt a handful of potentially game-breaking runs. And finally, the Panthers don't have great edge rushers, but Havenstein and Robinson sure made them look great. Carolina got constant edge pressure. Let's stop there for a second and get your analysis of what Classy said. Does that jibe with the film that you've been watching? Yeah, largely. Um, I can't say I spent much time watching Kenny Britt blocking, but uh, besides that, yeah. Hey, you know what? You you know what? You should. I promise you will enjoy. It. You really, you would. He gets after it. All of the Rams receivers do, even little Tavon. You would really. I am. Um, I think he's a little bit harsh on Case Keenum. I don't think Case Keenum's good. I'm not going to argue that he's good. He's not. He's not an awful deep shore. He's not a good deep shore either. Like so, I, I'm I'm quibbling over nothing really. Um. Yeah. I, I think like. The big concern, like, to, to beat the Panthers, I thought the Rams should have won that game. I, I honestly, like, they just held themselves back. Lance Kendricks had that drop. For me, the Tyler Higby should be starting over Lance Kendricks. I know Kendricks has had an okay year, but the talent disparity between the two, for me, is dramatic. Like, Higby is a legitimate receiving threat, whereas Kendricks is a guy who can catch the ball when he gets open. Well, sometimes catch the ball when he gets open. He is prone to, to having odd ball skills that don't work in his favor. So hey, Jeff despite, Fisher said he caught nine other passes. Well, of course. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, typical Fisher. <laughs> Once Fisher didn't bench uh, Keenum in after the London game, I think we should just kind of move on from listening to what Jeff Fisher says after games. Uh, no, I think overall I agree with what Derek says. Uh, the, the, the big problem there against the Panthers is the offensive tackles not working because the Panthers' defense basically doesn't work if you can block their edge defenders. 
because their secondary is so bad that you only need a little bit of time to attack their secondary. And even then, you saw it was, uh, I think it was Brian Quick who got open on a double, double move relatively early in the game, and Keenum just overthrew him. So, like, when he got time, he had a wide receiver wide open to throw to. He just missed the throw. But if you can block the edge rushers against the Panthers, you will generally have success against them. It was a big key in the Broncos game in week one, where they just kept running the ball outside and kept dominating because defensive ends aren't very good. So that's kind of your, your biggest thing for that game for me, because that's the difference between winning the game and losing the game, really. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, okay, so now, as soon as I can find my phone, I'm going to hit you with his assessment of the offense. So here were his bullet points from the Rams offense versus the Panther defense. Game notes. Aaron Donald played out of his mind. We all know how transcendent he is, but this particular game was one of the best performances of his career. Having a healthy Tremaine Johnson was key. He did a good job of forcing tough throws and defended the passes that came in his area, a presence that was dearly missed when Johnson was injured. The linebackers are starting to figure it out. They still have too many plays where they're a second late, but progress is being made, especially with Mark Barron, who... I think Joe and I both agree is much better as a safety. TJ McDonald had issues covering Greg Olson. He always has coverage issues. He's a hitting safety, not a coverage safety. Cam Newton was missing reads at an abnormal rate, and he fired and he misfired a few more times than usual. The Rams defense was good, but they benefited from some unusually ineffective performance from an unusually ineffective performance by Newton. The Rams employed some bare front looks, center and guards both covered by a defender, and had success doing so. What do you make of that, Keon? Sounds pretty much normal for the for the Rams at this point, doesn't it? The front seven carrying the the, the team with with the uh, with Jermaine Johnson being the only kind of standout secondary player. I thought EJ Gaines has kind of struggled a little bit when I've watched him this year. I'm not sure has he played every game. I'm not sure he has, has he? EJ nope. Gaines nope. has not played every no, game. No, he has not played every game. There were a couple he, games, actually, where he was even injured. Yeah, yeah. but he, true, he has true played Hill. Quite, Yeah, he has played quite a bit, though, hasn't he? And, and he's kind of the guy who I was excited about coming into the year, and I was expecting more of an impact from him, and I haven't really seen it. Maybe it's uh, his health, uh, it's slowing him down a little bit. But like you, you kind of knew the safeties were always going to be a problem. You knew Mark Barron's kind of in between positions. He's playing a role that doesn't really suit anyone. Uh, TJ McDonald. I thought McDonald a couple of years ago was better what he is now. I thought he used to be uh, a more solid player. Maybe that was the having, having McLeod behind him to, to cover him more because you don't really know what you've gotten more Alexander and, and uh, sorry, I just distracted there. Um, you, you don't really know what else you've got now behind him. But for me, like the struggle with the Rams defense generally is in the back seven. Besides Tremaine Johnson, I don't think you really have a great consistent player there. I know Alec Ogletree is uh, a great physical specimen and a guy who can make big plays, but on a consistency snap-to-snap basis, I think he's he's out of too many plays. He should be getting off blocks more than he is at this point in his career, and the transition to middle linebacker probably doesn't really suit him. Uh, But but Aaron Donald is the guy I kind of prefer to talk about when it comes to the Rams because he is legitimately (laughs) one of the best players in the league. I, I'll, ask, I'll ask you this question. It's the same question we, we asked on last night's podcast. Two questions. The first one is, while I understand that the secondary hasn't been doing a great job, when you look at 
the losses they had and how well-ish they're playing. You would one would figure, I would think, that with the losses of Janoris Jenkins and Rodney McLeod, that you know this this is going to be a team that's getting passed on left and right. I mean, that's just too many critical components to lose at once. And yet, the Rams have done an okay job, aside from a, a few games here and there, where they've managed to keep. The, the, the point totals at about 10 or less. While we are not going to say that the Rams secondary is amazing and we're not going to you know say that, oh, it doesn't need improvement. Would you be willing to listen to an argument that says they're playing better than maybe we expected they would? I think the key here is you have to understand the structure of the team. Like I just said with the Panthers, if you can block the defensive ends and neuter the, off- or the defensive line on the Panthers, well, the defensive tackles are generally better than defensive ends. But if you can stop the defensive ends and make them a non-factor, you can attack the secondary. And in, uh, in Los Angeles, it's basically the same thing because Aaron Donald is a scheme wrecker. He just destroys any, any play design that you have that involves the quarterback holding the ball. Robert Quinn, when healthy, does similar. And I know that you don't have Chris Long anymore. Uh, Brockers, I think, has been hurt a little bit. And Dominic Easley has played relatively well, I think, for, for what you're expecting from him. But I think the defensive line for me is the, the strength of the team. So, like, Janoris Jenkins is a really talented player, and he's playing a lot better in New York than he did in St. Louis. But in St. Louis, I thought he was uh, too much of a gambler, too much of a guy who was looking for the interception on every play. So losing him, to me, wasn't a huge hit for the secondary. So maybe you can argue, in, depending on how you look at it and depending on how you evaluate them, uh, and what your expectations were coming into the year. And you can say, yeah, they've been fine. They haven't been disastrous. So, yeah, that's probably fair. But for me, I think it just speaks more about the quality of the defensive lines. You know, I would um, I would agree with you for the most part. Um, I don't really have too much to quibble with, with what you just said. I think you kind of hit it on the head a lot. Um, how, however, however, I do think that, um, and just to kind of backtrack a little bit to the previous question, I do think that when you kind of look at uh, the secondary and you look at the uh, front seven, a lot of the, the a lot of the reason that the uh, secondary isn't getting killed is because of the front the not just not the front seven but just the front four is so dominant. <laughs> it's a, front, it's like you heard last night's podcast that hasn't even gone up yet. This is they're so dominant, you know. So it's not that the uh, the back the back guys are playing so well. It's just the defensive line it has played so well, especially when they've been healthy. When you put that type of pressure on the quarterback, passes are coming out a lot faster, and they are not going downfield. Um, you, you can't go downfield. There's no way you get killed. You, you actually get your quarterback hurt trying to go downfield, and that's kind of what happened against the Panthers when they were, they were able to get to Cam Newton more often then um, we've been able to get to other quarterbacks because they came in daring the Rams to get to him by trying to go downfield. And you saw the result there. He not only was sacked four times, he was hit a lot in the pocket, not outside of the pocket. So that's 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 more of a result from the Rams' uh, D-line than anything. However, me personally and me in class, we actually wrote an article, a combined article, where we kind of put some film together coming into the season about EJ Gaines and my expectation was kind of what we're seeing now. I, you know, I never expected him to come back strong. Um, I thought he was good as a rookie, but I think that people got a little too excited. He was a little bit overhyped 
very, very good, very solid, but he wasn't a shutdown corner, which is why I think people were kind of expecting coming in. Um, and my big thing with that is, you know, he was he was a solid corner, but he wasn't. He didn't even finish the season ranked in the top twenty, which will make you an above average. He was just average. Um, but however, however, when strength you have, at that time was their defensive front, not necessarily their secondary. Exactly. Now, when you have yourself a player who has that uh, a foot injury like that, history has shown they struggle to come back. Um, now, if you're only average, which isn't a bad thing, that you're a good player if you're average in the NFL, especially at corner, which is one of the hardest positions to play, especially as a rookie. <laughs> you know, so if you're average and then you have that injury, you miss an entire season. My big quibble was a lot of times when guys have those foot injuries because of the focus that it takes to get that foot right, you usually end up with a lot of soft tissue injuries, which is what we ended up saying. He he missed three the first three, four games because of those soft tissue injuries that he developed from focusing on his foot so much. It's history showed it. It kind of was an ex- expectation. That's why I was really highlighting it. Very good corner. I think he still brings my favorite part of his game to the table, which is his tackling. He's a very good tackler. He's a he's good at run defense. Yeah. That's the one thing those Mizzou cats did better, I think, they than anybody. <laughs> open, open, open field tackling was, he was a, something yeah. they specialized in. He comes down. He does not let running backs get around the edge and then break outside on his side. It doesn't happen, which is a huge difference because when Troy Hill and Cody Sensabaugh was out there, you regularly seen guys get to the edge and get around them. That does not happen with him in the game. And Tremaine Johnson is the same on the other side, which I think they both uh, bring to the table, which is why since they both have been in the lineup together, those games you have not seen running backs break runs off. You've seen running backs break runs off when they are not in the game together. But as a corner, your primary thing should not be tackled. It should be coverage. And that's why I think that um, there's more There's more to the success of the uh, secondary than what they what they've been able to do as a unit in the secondary, I think that it has more to do with just the defensive line because I just haven't seen that legitimate good coverage consistently. Um, even Tremaine Johnson has kind of I've seen him regress, you know, a few steps from last year, uh, this year. Um, it's, he's not been bad, but there's been some times where he's got lucky, born a good receiver was missed or whatever the case may be, but he still played uh, well enough. I bet you would say. All right. So let's talk about something, unless, Keon, unless you wanted to get in there and touch on something he said. Um, I want to move on to Aaron Donald, but did you have any last things you wanted to add, or should we just go ahead and move on? No, keep going. Okay. So you mentioned that the one of the things you love to talk about is Aaron Donald, and I'd like to do that. At the end of the show uh, last night, I put a question, well, it was actually at the end of our interview with J.B. Long, who's the voice of the Rams. I put a question to J.B. Long. Rich Hammond of the Orange County Register had tweeted that it's a shame that Aaron Donald's play is being masked by the stench of the Rams' offense. He is having, without a doubt, one of the best defensive seasons I've ever seen from a player. In your opinion, is Aaron Donald, or should he be, not is, because what is and what should are not often the case when it comes to awards, as we've seen, should Aaron Donald be one of the final names mentioned for Defensive Player of the Year? Keon, we'll start with you. Myson, jump in after that. Sure, and we can bring this kind of full circle a little bit. 
Why, why was Aaron Donald available to the Rams in the first round at pick 12 or whatever it was? Because he's a little bit shorter than what teams want. They look at the frame, they look at the size, and yeah, it matters more for defensive linemen but, than it does for quarterbacks. But Aaron Donald was overlooked because of his size, and now his size is a major weapon for him because it helps him create leverage. It, it helps him... Uh, make, make, like I think you saw on his big... He's on his sack for Cam Newton on Sunday, you saw him stand the, the left guards up shimmy a little bit, then run right around him. And the left guard just can't keep up with Aaron Donald because Aaron Donald is extremely quick, an extremely extremely good athlete for a guy who weighs whatever he weighs. Uh, and you, you can't block him with double teams because he understands leverage and how to use his hands to, to break through the middle. You can't kind of just push him out of place because he's smart enough to, to work back in him and he keeps working hard. For me, like if you look at Aaron Donald and compare him to what, to what J.J. Watt was two years ago or when J.J. Watt was last fully healthy or whatever that was, it's basically the same thing. It's a guy who can move around the formation, who's going to blow up plays just by penetrating, just by being faster off the line, and just by overwhelming the uh, blockers. Like you, you can't ask for a better defensive tackle than what you're getting, a penetrating defensive tackle anyway. Uh, and, uh, he, he's with a perfect fit in Michael Brockers next to him because Brockers is more of a space eater and a guy who can hold up. But even he's a, a decent penetrator at times. But like you, no one can block Aaron Donald. And if no one can block Aaron Donald, it doesn't matter what play design you have. It doesn't matter what play call you have. The ball has to come out quicker because he's going to force it to come out quicker. If it doesn't come out quicker, that uh, he, he's going to be on your quarterback like he was on Newton all on Sunday. I personally thought that he should have won it last year, and I made a huge deal. People told me I was whining. <laughs> I made a huge deal about him not winning it. Um, I just didn't see that anyone having a better season than him. Um, I think that people got a little too caught up in the sacks. When you look at the sack total coming from that position, it is astonishing. Um, especially when you look at the hits on the computer, just the pressures, the, the contact that he makes with the QB. And then you look at the run game. Um, no one was better at playing the run than him, regardless of position. He got back there at will. He single-handedly shut down run plays. He literally made the Rams' run defense better by himself. And even this year, with all the injuries and him being the only starter in there, he was still able to elevate the run defense. When the Bills got off, it's because he was playing defensive end, and they were. when you take him out of the middle, you make the distance that he has to travel to get to the ball carrier longer, which means you can just run away from him. When you keep him in the middle, well, it's 50-50. He get, he's so quick, he can get to either side in the blink of an eye, as opposed to having to travel across the entire offensive line from defensive end like he was in that game. He's right there in your face the second you get the ball. Now, that speaks volumes to his versatility more than anything, the fact that you can do that with him. But it also took away from their ability to play the run up the middle. And when you look at the runs that the Bills was getting off, which was by far the, the most production anyone's had on the Rams this year, they were getting them up the middle, just dashing them whenever he was playing outside. And that's kind of uh, that kind of tells you how important he is. He's one of those players where when you lose them, there's a huge difference in your production. And that speaks not necessarily to how poor your talent is, but how good that player is. And that's what Aaron Donald has become. Um, I think that it would be a shame if he wasn't an absolute shoe-in for a defensive player of the year. 
that's not biased. That's just real. I don't see any player doing what he does on a snap to snap basis. And like, and I think the huge issue is it doesn't always show up in the box score how much he affects the play, how he causes other players to make plays. He is the definition of what you call a guy who makes the players around him better. He makes life easier for other players because he forces them into situations to have success. And now that you have Robert Quinn healthy again, who preseason was someone I kept saying, I think people forgot he exists because he was hurt last year and Aaron Donald had so much success. People completely forgot Robert Quinn is a top five edge rusher in the NFL hands down. So when you add him into the equation, that makes Aaron Donald better. And I think that's what we're seeing now that Robert Quinn is back and healthy is now you're starting to see Aaron Donald get his sacks. So now now he's not only playing the run, he's getting his sacks, and he's still getting those pressures that he had before QB. I think that it should be a, a landslide for him to win defensive player of the year. He's too important. He makes too many plays. In my personal opinion, he's a top three player in the NFL regardless of position. All right, uh, Keon, what I want to do right now is toss some listener questions at you. And if it's not something you know how to answer, because at for all right, you know what? We should have done this in the beginning. But for those who don't know exactly what you do, give us a little background about yourself. And I feel bad for not doing this in the beginning, but people don't know that we were already talking beforehand so we just kind of wanted to jump right into it since we had some stuff on our mind but i think it is appropriate to take a little bit of space here in the middle of this towards the end to allow you to talk about what you do and how where people can find your work and and uh you know find you on social media as well <laughs> we should or we could just leave it as a mystery and let people try and guess and see if he's actually exists or if i'm kind of down with that one right. too <laughs> let's let's go with that <laughs> um no you can i i i kind of bounce around a little bit i'm basically a freelance writer uh i at the moment i do the bleacher report nfl 1000 i do the quarterbacks and people probably hear that and get sick because they generally hate my quarterback rankings but that's what quarterback rankings are for i suppose and in the off season i release an annual book that examines every single uh drop back for every single quarterback in the league Last year, I think it was 53,000 plays. It might even be 35,000 because my brain is at the point where it doesn't remember these things. Um, and I just go through every quarterback, evaluate every throw, whether it was accurate, whether it was interceptable, uh, whether the receiver let him down, all that kind of stuff, all basically in-depth analysis that you can't really find anywhere else. And I write columns, I write for Football Outsiders, I write for Football Guys and a couple of uh, The Guardian and a couple of other places. I, I get around, in other words. Yeah, I, I, I'm trying to do say the same thing in the soccer world. You know, I, I, I've been doing a little coverage of Manchester City, and uh, it's interesting, man. So, so I feel the plight of trying to cover a sport from from where you are. You know what I mean? Like it's it's interesting, and I don't think that there's a person out there that I can think of that does as an extensive in-depth and quality work as you from across the pond in some way, shape, or form. <laughs> that, that really narrows it down. That was a great yeah, time well, when it started, and at the end it was just like, yeah, I can't think of anyone else who lives near you. I know one! <laughs> he, 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 he actually covers the Patriots, and, and he's a... Uh, 
an occasional co-host on our American Citizens podcast. So, <laughs> but uh, let's jump into some of these listener questions. And I feel like some of these we have kind of answered, but we'll get you out of here on a couple of these. This one maybe is uh, uh, a little bit adjacent to what we talked about to the offensive line, but Nomo Brent wants to know, are there any offensive linemen better than what is being thrown out there right now? I presume he means as a free agent pickup, is it? I think he means currently on the roster or, yeah, I mean, if you see anybody out there who will become available, I think this is as good of a time to talk about it as any, right? <laughs> well, there's a, there's a simple way of answering this. The Minnesota Vikings lost both of their offensive tackles. Who did they sign to start as a left tackle? Jake Long, who can't move anymore. And I think you, you probably don't need to even be told where Jake Long in, is in his career because he was in St. Louis. There are no offensive linemen out there available. At this point, if you've got a bad offensive line, you've got to look for the free agents that are coming up next year, the draft, that you, you can find someone. The main issue that I, I find with teams who have bad offensive lines is they don't do enough true scheme to help them. They don't set their quarterback up with package plays where he has options or with quick throws that are designed screens, stuff like that. Like you look at um, Detroit Lions, like Matthew Stafford is having a productive year largely because of the offense that Jim Bob Cooter runs where it's all quick short throws and the ball comes out straight away. So their limited offensive line isn't even having an impact on the game because the ball is out so fast that they don't have to pass protect. So I, I would be less concerned about what you can pick up or who you can uncover and more concerned about how the offense is set up. And what about you, Myson? Anything uh, add? I would say no. Um, I just think that the, the Rams' pickings on offensive line is it's what you would expect from a, uh, a coach like Jeff Fisher who has yet <laughs> who really has yet to show that he can identify good talent for the offensive line. You know, his success, his most successful units in Tennessee were guys who were, um, who played for a very long time and was there when he took over the head coaching job, you know, and th that's, that's just a sad truth of the matter. <laughs> After those guys started to retire, drop off and get older, you never really saw him have that successful offensive line again. And that's that's kind of where that's kind of what it's been from that point on, and it's carried over to now to the present. That he just can't he can't put together a successful offensive line. So I don't see anything on the team. This is this is probably the best that they have. What they have starting is is probably the best that you're gonna get. Um, yeah, I would, if I would make any change, I would move Saffold back to tackle, and I would just flip flop him and Robinson. That would be it. <laughs> That's fair enough. All right, here's an easy one, uh, Keon. From fantasy question, is it time to move on from Gurley? Uh, <laughs> Fantasy-wise, probably is. I would be reluctant to simply for what I've uh, for for what kind of talent he is. Um, well, have to, the, the main thing you have to look at with the when it comes to fantasy is what the schedule is. So. If you look at who they're going to play upcoming, you've got the Jets, who J.H.I. just had a decent game against, but he was shut down for three quarters of the game. He finished off with decent stats overall. Then you play the Dolphins, then you play the Saints. Yeah, you've probably got to keep him because there are some matchups in there that will be favorable. But man, it was a seriously disappointing season for him, really, wasn't it? I would say no. <laughs> I'd say no quick, fast, and hairy because he's had 
he's had matchups already where you would say, oh, yeah, he should have, but nothing happened. <laughs> so I would definitely give it a, 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 a an astounding no um, just from what he's done. So already. you're saying it's not tying. You shouldn't move him on. Keep no, 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 no. I'm sorry. I mean, when I say no, I mean don't keep him. <laughs> okay, okay, fair yeah. enough. I just I just wanted to clarify. Yeah, All right. yeah. <laughs> Here, here's one that is just more for fun. And it comes from Terry JT1. Hard shell or soft shell tacos? <laughs> oh. uh, soft shell for me. Yeah, soft. I hate hard shells. I used to the roof of my mouth as a kid. <laughs> yep, three across the board. Soft shell tacos are always the way to go. Okay, now... Here's one from Rams Nation 33. What are the top positions the Rams need to approve on, in your opinion? <laughs> oh, this is a common question. The top three positions? Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't want to say the one that, uh, that's kind of obvious. Uh, we're the quarterback, but let's presume that's going to improve, so we'll discount that. Um, I think tight end would be a big addition if you can get a guy like Higby in there and let him, let him develop and show that he can be a, a bit of a mismatch receiver. Um, I'm not too concerned about the receivers. I'm not a big Kevin Austin guy, but I think Kenny Britt has shown a lot this year. I think there are enough pieces there to be a decent offense with good uh, quarterback play. I think if you literally if you added three offensive linemen to to the to the offensive line, I think you could probably do it pretty much anywhere. Maybe you'll keep right to your right tackle, but of the other four spots, like you can you can put anyone in anywhere and, and see major improvements. Uh, third, third for let, let's. Give a third option, even though I think I've given about six so far. Uh, I, the third option, I would be looking for uh, a, a consistent, uh, a more consistent outside linebacker than what you've got. A guy who can be constantly filling his gap against the run, who's always going to be in the right position where he's supposed to be, even if he's not a great athlete or a, a great playmaker or, what, or whatever way you want to describe that. But for me, just get, get more stability, get more consistency on the back seven of the defense overall. Th those should be the goals moving forward. I would say... Um... For me, it's pretty easy. I would say offensive line. Um, I would say offensive line, safety, and corner. Um, as we talked about it already, you know, you look at the, the the defensive line, they make up more than enough talent and ability to make the linebackers better. Um, so if you had those guys that were legit playmakers on the back end, like a legit shutdown corner and a true safety net at safety, and some legitimate offensive linemen, I think this team can really take off with, even with the pieces they already have. Like you said, I don't really have too many problems with the receivers, and I wouldn't say that we need to upgrade tight end because, like you said, we already have Higby, who I think is a huge talent upgrade over uh, Lance Kendricks. Um, if you get that line, then you would give the quarterback more time and you would give more holes to Gurley, and um, you have that safety net deep playing safety, and then you have a legitimate lockdown corner. So I would say line, quarter, and safety. Fair enough. Now, here's a fun question for you. Obviously, everybody is a little bit tired of the of Jeff Fisher. Now, there were two questions in here. A1 Detective wanted to know who are some L.A. coaching candidates. I'm going to uh, assume he meant who are some candidates to take over the Rams rather than who should the Rams get out of Los Angeles. And I'm not even sure. BTZKOC. 
wants to know which young head coach candidates are out there that could be a good match with the Rams. Now, my theory is the number one coach out there that the Rams should target it is not going to happen, but if they could get it, I think it's a perfect fit. It'd be David Shaw. <laughs> with the defense they already have in place and Shaw's ability to do more with less at the quarterback position, not to mention his demeanor and the fact that he's already a California guy, I think David Shaw is a guy who could succeed tremendously uh, in the NFL. Um Outside of that, I think you're looking at maybe some coordinator positions. If you can go out there and poach someone else in a world where the Rams could somehow steal Pete Carroll away, which will (laughs) never happen. That would be something that would be interesting just simply because they're going to be playing in the Coliseum for the next three years. Um, And again, these are just ideas I'm tossing out on the top of my head. But from where you sit, Keon, if you had to name one or two guys, that would be a perfect fit to take over. Because the big worry is this. And I talked about this on last night's podcast. I said, you keep Fisher where he is. You can be sure that a decent portion of this team, especially the playmakers, are going to stay intact. However... If a new coach comes in and starts looking at the holes he needs to fill, he's going to say, I need draft picks. Well, which players on the teams are going to get you draft picks? The only person I can think of is that defensive juggernaut we've been talking about. And I think most Rams fans would lose their mind if they shipped off Aaron Donald to recoup the draft capital they lost by botching the Goff pick. So you need somebody who's not going to come in and blow up the system. Who might that be, Keon? Well, I wouldn't take a a defensive coach, and I would take someone who would look at the offense. And my main thing here is I don't want to hire a coach who I don't really like just to to make him fit with the quarterback I already have waiting. So even though I know Kyle Shanahan wouldn't be a good fit with Jared Goff, I would like to hire him because... Look, look at the work he's done with the offenses he's played or he's, he's coached. Uh, he got the most out of um, Brian Hoyer in Cleveland than anyone could ever have expected. And he's getting great results out of Matt Ryan right now. He knows how to attack specific defenses. His play calling is consistent and it's generally well thought out. It's not a matter of just throwing plays together and hoping to see what happens. He's a guy who will craft the offense and give it an identity. And he might even get be able to develop some of the players that you have there on that side of the ball right now. You know, I love that you said. I love that you said that because he was someone I really, really, really wanted the Rams to bring in uh, this offseason. And you know, rumors had came that they were setting up an interview, and then it didn't happen um, for whatever reason. Um, but I thought that he would have been a great guy to bring in because of his success and his ability to adapt to players. Um, but one one offensive coordinator that I love, um, and it's because of how well he adapts. He makes do with what he has is Mike Shula. Um, he figures it out, and he he's done an excellent job with the Panthers. You look at no matter what they're facing, they seem to always have some type of injury on that team on offense, and he overcomes it all the time. And it's not some guy that's easy to replace. You know, Kelvin Benjamin isn't easy to replace. Cam Newton isn't easy to replace. Jonathan Stewart isn't easy to replace, but he figures it out, and he 
adjust his sips, his, his game, uh, his game plan week to week. It's not, hey, we're going to turn off, turn around, hand it off to Gurley. It's very similar to kind of what Bill Belichick does. Bill Belichick doesn't believe in a system or a game plan, or, or not a game plan, but a um, a plan of, of attack. You know, it's going to be based off of what the uh, opposing team is giving you. It changes, and that's who Mike Shula is. I think Mike Shula will be a great candidate to uh, kind of steal away from the team. I don't have a problem with the rest of the coaches except for Boudreaux. If we can get a offensive-minded coach in there and a new off- a new uh, O-line coach like a Tom um, Cable or something, I think they could be pretty good. Well, on that note, I think we've covered a boatload of topics today. And, Keon, I have no idea what time it is there, but if <laughs> – I know anything when I talk with people in London, they are eight hours. So I'm guessing you are somewhere in the six to seven range. Uh, I am in the same time zone. So oh, you're in the same you time zone, so eight hours. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, on that note, what I'd like to do right now, man, is I'd like to give you an opportunity to talk about anything that you have upcoming, any articles that you're going to be putting out or any reviews that you're currently doing. This is something that we do on every show. We like to give our guests to take as much time as they need to talk about what they're doing. It's the least we could do for all the time you gave us today, man. Uh, no, there's nothing really. I just have my, my weekly, all my work comes out on Thursdays. Uh, it, it's Football Outsiders. We have the film room column every week. Uh, the only kind of thing that I have upcoming is the quarterback catalog, and that's not coming out till middle of the offseason. So uh, that's probably something you'll forget about after, after the show itself finishes. So nothing really, just working with as ever. And uh, if you if you want my Twitter, it's AF, which is C-I-A-N-A-F. And it's not AFD internet meme. I've only found that out after I, I, I set up that account. So uh, they're actually initials. <laughs> so, uh, no, nothing really. That's pretty much me. All right. And, my sim, what you got coming up this week? Oh, man, this week I'm going to be doing a, uh, a, a mid-season sort of uh, report and kind of breaking down what I've seen so far and what, what my expectations are for um, – the second half of the season, and then also kind of uh, going over a little bit of when do when should you expect golf? Um, just to give a, a bit of a sneak peek, I fully expect golf to be playing sooner than later, as I don't believe the Rams will stay in playoff contention for much longer. Perfect. All right. So the final question I'm going to hit you all with is this, and I don't really think I'm going to get an answer. I'm not expecting, but. <laughs> At the end of the 2016, Jeff Fisher is, Kian? Unemployed. That's my whole. My, my son? <laughs> I, I mean, you already know what I'm going to say. Absolutely unemployed. 100%, <laughs> absolutely 100% uh, unemployed. Um, Nowhere near the damn Rams, hopefully. I, I don't believe that he's going to get that contract. I think that they have one drawn up, but he had to earn it, and he's yeah. not earning it. Fair enough. Well, you know, man, uh, Keon, it has been an absolute blessing to have you on discussing X's and O's and breakdowns. And as the season winds down to an end, I would definitely love to have you back on. And certainly your quarterback 
pieces will probably be something that we look at quite heavily since, well, the Rams don't know what the quarterback position is. So I definitely like to, uh, to bring you back on at another time, if you're willing, and, and, and we'll take a look at what's out there, what may be better for the Rams. And in the event that Fisher is replaced, maybe look at some possibilities that would mesh well with the incoming coach. Yeah, man, sounds good. All right. Uh, well, for Myson and Kian, this is Josh, and you've been listening to an extra special X's and O's episode of Turf Show Radio. We will catch you guys next time. As always, you can follow us on Twitter at Turf Show Times. You can also find us on Facebook, and you can follow us individually. Uh, Myson, what is, yours is just my son, right? Myson on Twitter? Uh, Mighty or Myson. Um, ah, at- that's right. Yeah. And then uh, Keon is Keon Fahey, I believe. Uh, and you can just look at our damn, when we post it up, just look at the name and that's how you can search it. C-I-A-N-F-H or F-A-H-E-Y. See, I didn't even get through it. So uh, for all of us here at Turf Show Radio, we want to thank you guys for listening and we will catch you next time. My name is Spencer Hall. My name is Jason Kirk. My name is Ryan Nanny. And when we combine, we form the, the Shutdown, Shutdown Fullcast. I keep telling you, we're not Voltron. The Shutdown Fullcast is technically a college football podcast, but it's also a show about lawn care disasters, regional grocery stores we love, Tennessee Batman, homeowners associations. Bears and video games. I mean, there's also some actual football discussion, like about coaches having huge contracts or coaches making terrible decisions or coaches saying really stupid things. Or the NCAA saying really stupid things. Yeah, there's lots of stupid things in this big, dumb, beautiful sport. Sometimes we talk about football games. Allegedly. If you want to take college football exactly as seriously as it deserves to be taken, come find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts like this one. The Shutdown Podcast. It's not Voltron.